0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. For years, Frank Sherlock has been a well-known and respected member of the Philadelphia arts scene. In 2013, the poet received a prestigious Pew Fellowship. The next year, he became Philadelphia's second poet laureate. But in April, Sherlock's world came crashing down when a fellow poet posted a poem to social media describing Sherlock's flirtation with white nationalist punk music in the 1980s. Sherlock himself then wrote a lengthy Facebook post, which has since been deleted, confessing to the truth of that accusation. Sherlock is now 50 years old, and his brief career as a white nationalist musician played out more than half a lifetime ago. Nevertheless, he has been mobbed online, and one of his co-authors from 2010 has publicly demanded that his publisher pull all copies of the book they'd written together. This week, I spoke to Clint Margrave, a Los Angeles-based poet who has written about Sherlock's plight in a Quillette story entitled The Impassible Road to Redemption. He joins me on the phone with his fellow Angeleno poet, Timothy Green, who is also the editor of the poetry journal Rattle. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Clint, who is Frank Sherlock?
2: He's a widely published poet, recently having work in Poetry Magazine and American Poetry Review. He grew up, as far as I know, in southwest Philly. While he was Poet Laureate, he did a couple projects. One was called Write Your Block, which was a project in which people could submit poems about their neighborhoods, using personal landmarks, identifying their communities and so forth. Uh, He also did something known as the Immigrant Alphabet, which was a series of workshops at Northeast High School, uh, which is one of the most diverse immigrant student populations in the Philadelphia area. I just found out that he also happened to introduce Bernie Sanders at Drexel University in 2016 and read a poem as part of that introduction. So a fairly uh, woke guy these days But there is a backstory, and what happened a few weeks ago is that Frank Sherlock wrote a post on Facebook in which he confessed to having been in a racist skinhead band when he was a teenager in the 1980s, which led to a pile-on, of course, for this. He took his post down. But one of the people he collaborated on a book with, C.A. Conrad, posted about this and eventually contacted Bloof Books, which had put out his recent collaboration with Conrad, The City Real and Imagined, and asked them to stop printing it.
1: How much do we know about the skinhead gang? Was this a bunch of local kids who considered themselves skinheads, or was it something more serious?
2: I don't believe Frank Sherlock was involved in any of the violence from what I've read. He played in a band, and he was the singer in that band. And there is one clip of an interview with him talking about his band in which he talks about white nationalism. What I gathered from C.A. Conrad's post is that Frank told him He had never participated in any of the violence. The fragment of an interview I have is from 1987, and it was an interview with the band he was in, which was called New Glory. The interview refers to him as Fran Sherlock, but as far as I know, this is where some of this information comes from.
1: So we're talking about events that are three decades old. Yes. So more than half a lifetime ago, the title of your article for Quillette, which was published on April 24th, was the impassable road to redemption which gives some clue about how this Facebook thing worked out. Sounds like he didn't get any forgiveness whatsoever based on the reaction. It seems
2: like he didn't get forgiveness from maybe the people he wanted it from. Certainly there was also, I did see some support, though, in the community for him. I saw other poets posting in support of him, people leaving comments, but a lot of it was also critical.
1: Have any of the public figures, Bernie Sanders would be a stretch, I guess, but any of the civic leaders in Philadelphia with whom he'd collaborated on some of these poetry projects and schemes to help kids and such, have they raised their voice in support of him? Not that I have seen. You have some really extraordinary quotes in the article. There was one poet who said something to the effect of if somebody has anything like this in their background, they can never have any forgiveness ever. Which poet am I thinking of?
2: I believe it was a poet named Sarah Bess, who I don't really know anything about. I'm not sure how influential, but certainly having effect on Twitter. I believe what was said was something to the effect of should a fascist be allowed to change? And the answer was no. Uh, Which brings up an interesting question. If a fascist is not allowed to change, of course, then a fascist stays a fascist.
1: Actually, now that you said her name, I was able to find it. I don't know the story. This is Sarah Bess. I don't know the story, and I don't need to. But I will say that the question should never be, can a fascist change? But should a fascist be allowed to change? And the answer is no. That's a really creepy thing to say. And I mean, you could substitute the word fascist, insert the word communist or racist or mean-spirited. The ability to change is the presumption that's embedded in every religion, in every form of therapy. Every self-help book we read is based on the idea that we can change somehow. That's quite shocking. Were there other voices in the community saying things like that?
2: There was a small press, I believe they were called called back books, that had posted something similar, questioning whether he was even telling the truth about having not participated in the violence, basically telling him, fuck you, Frank Sherlock.
1: This is not the first time, Clint, that that you've written about this issue. What is it that drew you to this issue in poetry? Because a couple of months ago, you wrote another great article about this subject.
2: You know, I'm a poet. I teach creative writing poetry classes. I teach literature classes. And I've just seen this turn in the last four years of people reacting to the art itself. And um, I'm an old school, new critic that looks at the work itself and doesn't pay attention to the biographies of a particular artist or their behavior. And I've noticed this ideological shift within these communities in which people have started to dig into the behavior of an artist and judge them upon that.
1: Last question before we bring Tim in. Have you personally faced blowback from within the poetry community for writing articles that strike a sympathetic chord in regard to poets who have been ostracized?
2: I certainly did with the last article.
1: And that was Rachel Custer, is that?
2: Yes, Rachel Custer. I certainly took some blowback, but mostly I have to say less than I expected. So for the most part, a lot of people secretly messaging me words of support. And I think there's a climate of fear where people don't publicly state their support. But even I teach at a college and one day I was walking to my car and a colleague pulled up and he said, hey, I I read your article yesterday and I just wanted to say I, I, I agree with every word and I really support it. I was just too afraid to say so on Facebook. So I think there's this sort of secret world of support that I'm seeing more and more
1: Tim if if I could bring you into the conversation and this woman Sarah Bess who we were talking about the poet who said I don't know the story and I don't need to but as to the question can a fascist change the real question is should a fascist be allowed to change and the answer is no based on your knowledge of the community is there a chance that Sarah Bess doesn't actually believe that but feels that she has to strike a certain posture publicly
3: Oh, I don't know. That's a hard question. You know, what's in the hearts of people? I have no idea who believes what and who's um, just virtue signaling. So I really couldn't say.
1: Because I'm not sure I've done it so cynically, but I'm not in the poetry community, and I there are things that I wouldn't say online. I think for a lot of people there is a disjunction between what they feel privately and what they say publicly. But for some reason this chasm seems to be particularly wide in the poetry community, which I know a lot of people find weird because it's this place where words are supposed to be extra precious, right? And where cynicism and propaganda, which represent a perversion of verbal expression, are reviled. Why is the poetry world, at least anecdotally, in such a much more troubled state on this type of issue than other areas of arts and letters?
3: Well, poetry uh, itself is a really a monoculture in the same way a lot of humanities departments are. It's hard to even think of right-leaning poets; they're very few, and it's because poetry lives in the humanities departments, really, of universities. So it suffers from the same ailments, I guess, of monoculture that that the rest of college does. We have a, a section. On our uh, magazine for news poems, poems about current events. So during the election in 2016, we received thousands and thousands of poems about Trump and Hillary Clinton. And you could count on the palm of your hand how many poets had anything positive to say about Trump. And there were thousands and thousands of poems that, you know, tore into him. And, you know, maybe justifiably but the level of skew toward the left is pervasive to the point where everybody's already been silenced, I think, if they have a different opinion. If you're a right-leading poet, I don't think you talk about that. At one point, I actually wanted to do a conservative poet's issue. One of the things we do in our issues is have a theme section where we feature some kind of group that has something in common. And I couldn't find anybody who, except for Rachel Custer, who um, Clint wrote about earlier, who would openly admit to be a conservative poet. So we just didn't do it. That ended up being a civil servant's issue because the poet we wanted to interview happened to be a civil servant. Uh,
1: Rachel Custer is an interesting example. If memory serves, she lives in the Midwest. I think she's a religious Christian. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although religion itself inspires people to flights of rapture. Do you not get religious poetry from people, which sometimes
3: exhibits traditional or conservative viewpoints? We do sometimes, but it's very rare. We actually had a Poets of Faith theme where we published a lot of Christian poets. And there were a few, and it was a really fascinating issue. But the feedback we got from that, there was a lot of outrage about the fact that we'd even do it. Like, that's how extremely left-leaning the poetry community really is.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about what you said about the interplay between Poetry and the Academy. There's a Canadian writer named Russell Smith who wrote a great piece, not about poetry, more about fiction and writing in general, where he talked about how it's become so difficult for writers to make a living just from their writing that they pretty much have to go out and get jobs as like associate professors of creative writing. And once inside those places, they become infected with the famously difficult and sometimes toxic professional cultures within academia is that at play here with poetry like was it possible maybe i'm being naive here was it possible 50 years ago to not be a professor at university and just be a professional poet and scratch out some kind of living just
3: through the creation of poetry i don't think that was ever possible Actually, you know, even if you look at some of the best-selling poets, um, maybe Ginsburg, I think the original print run of Howell was a thousand copies. Right. So that's not enough to sell, but those are performance poets. There's a circuit too, of poets who go on speaking tours. There's a couple agents that represent poets and they'll go to colleges and do paid readings and things like that, and will make you know five or ten thousand dollars a pop. So there's a way outside of academia. But it's a very elite few that get the chance to do that.
1: When I think of poets, Ezra Pound, you know, he wasn't—he wasn't a lefty. Are there great poets of the twentieth century whose work is still read? But if they were still alive would be deplatformed in a
3: minute because of outrages and their politics or their lifestyles? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> even, you know, Pound, you mentioned, T.S. Eliot. I just saw an article about how should Walt Whitman be canceled. What, what did he do? I don't know. What did he do, Clint? I didn't even uh, read it. I just looked at the headline.
2: I, there are, yeah, I, I looked at it. I skimmed it. There are some references that perhaps suggest some racism. I mean, let's not forget one of the bigger 20th century poets, Charles Bukowski, has quite a reputation as well of not being exactly a a Puritan. Do people talk candidly about it in the community now? I think now it's shunned any bad behavior. Not that it was ever applauded, but at least people understood that an artist is just like every other human. can be flawed, that the work is not the same as the behavior of the artist. But these days, the focus seems to be more on the behavior.
1: Is this something that just goes hand in hand with the politics of the Academy combined with social media and Since we're never going to lose social media, this is just the new normal. It's going to be a political monoculture.
2: Thinking about this today, this was a question I was thinking is where will we be in 10 years with all this? Will we adapt maybe to this new way of communicating? I think some things will level out. I think there's a little bit of hysteria at the moment. And we've had social media of 10 years, which is fairly new in the history of human communication. So I feel like maybe there will be some lessons learned. At what cost will be another question.
3: You know, I was thinking about this earlier, and I actually was wondering if maybe we've passed peak outrage. I honestly don't care about this issue all that much. Like, I love poetry for what it does, not for the literary stuff for climbing to the top of the ivory tower. So I was looking back at the timeline, and there were scandals dating back earlier, that always had to do with some kind of actual ethical problem. There were a lot of plagiarism scandals. There was the poetry scandal where um, somebody made an anonymous website just listing all of the people who had chosen their students for awards later. And mm. that was back in around 2005, maybe, if I remember right. But I mean, it seemed to me, and maybe Clint can remember something earlier, but it seems like the first one where it was a social justice-oriented sort of mobbing was when Kenneth Goldsmith read... Now, Kenneth Goldsmith is this poet who believes in uncreative writing, I think he calls it. So he has a whole book that's just, I think, The Weather Report from The New York Times on 9-11. So he does all these things where he doesn't create the writing. He's finding it and recontextualizing, I guess he'd say, which is not my thing, but whatever. And in March 2015, he read uh, Michael Brown's Autopsy at a reading, I think, in New York City, if I remember right. And there was a lot of outrage about that, about appropriation and all that. And then that summer, we had Vanessa Place, who was tweeting Gone with the Wind, which was a very ironic situation in itself. And the Michael Derrick Hudson, where he had a poem published in Best American Poetry, writing under the pen name of a Chinese woman. So that was another outrage. And it seems like it's slowing down a little bit to me already. And so I was wondering, I wonder if Clint might agree, but I was wondering if maybe starting to to turn a corner, because that seemed like the biggest was 2015, if you list out the various uh, big mobbings that, that people wrote articles about.
2: I mean, every time I think it is, it seems like something new comes along each week. John, I know you're familiar with the recent controversy with Hesh Keston.
1: I am, yeah, and that's an interesting one. So this is a Canadian author, and, well, this maybe supports that we've passed peak outrage, because I think peak outrage was associated with the target kind of just rolling over and, and begging for forgiveness, uh, where Hesh Keston, if that's how you pronounce his name, sort of wrote a, a potboiler novel set in the Middle East. It was said to be Islamophobic. His own publisher dumped him this is quite recently. It's April 2019. But he sort of fought back, and he said, you know what? I'll take copies of that book, and uh, and I'll find another publisher. And he's received a lot of support on social media. There's one example that I wanted to run past you guys. It's a more obscure example, but it's interesting to me. The guy's name is Barrett Watton, who's a poet, Wayne State University. And you know he's apparently been around for a long time. I heard one of you indicate recognition. And there's this website that's popped up. It's called bwrecords2019.home.blog. And it's a collection of testimonials about Barrett Watton being a bad person. And as one says, it has subheadings like an account from a poetry scholar. This one has a name, an account from Tracy Newman, associate professor of history at Wayne State. An account from Lisa Jarnot, poet and poetry scholar. What's interesting about it, at least at the time I read it, It wasn't like there was some big thing, like he was in a skinhead band or he he sexually assaulted someone. It was just kind of these stories of him allegedly being a jerk. It was almost like this postmodern Seinfeldian mobbing that was kind of about nothing, with everyone just adding in their voice. But on the other hand, my theory reading it is like, huh, there's been lots of academics who have been jerks and are jerks to their colleagues for years and years and years, and then they retire and people say nice things about them. But now we're just at this point where people are like, enough, I'm not going to pay homage to these jerks. And I care more about the views of my peers on social media than I do about the social hierarchy and the professional hierarchy within a place like Wayne State University. And so what we're witnessing is just like, it's a change in people's value system. They're no longer willing to be good little soldiers and graduate students who put up with jerks. They're going to call them out and be whistleblowers. I'm not sure if either of you have been following this thing at Wayne State, but maybe part of this is healthy. People are just like, they're not silently giving in to other forms of judgment hierarchies in the past. You know, As much as we dislike mobbing, maybe it was also equally unhealthy when people just kept their mouths shut about people who were well-known as jerks either in the poetry community or anywhere else.
2: Sure, I I agree. I actually read part of the testimony, and I was looking at it more as him as a professor more than a poet. And I did think, you know, some of this behavior was, as a professor myself, I was reading it and thinking, some of this behavior is out of hand.
1: And it's not not proven, but there are a lot of testimonials, which the general theme is that he's kind of like a self-centered jerk.
2: Yeah, there there were certain things where he was just mean, and then there were other things where it seemed a little like he crossed lines um, as a teacher. But I think this is part of the problem, is this conflation of academia with poetry, which, you know, it's always been there to a certain extent, but there's the idea of the poet and then the idea of the teacher, and those are two different things. When you bring those together, sometimes you have problems, because the teacher, of course, is out there in the community and has certain responsibilities, students and so forth. And a poet or an artist in general really doesn't separate from a career or professional life. And I think this is one of the issues too, is that today I think, you know, if you're an artist or a poet in this case, your actions reflect the whole community. You're somehow responsible for the whole community rather than just being an individual artist. And I find that this is leading to some of this blowback is this sort of ideological idea that you're not just an individual, that you somehow represent the whole community and you have to act responsibly in that way. I don't agree with it, but that seems to be part of it.
1: Tim, do you have thoughts on this idea of whether poets have obligations to a wider community? Because that is a theme uh, here in Canada, especially, there's been a mania for this sort of essay. The idea that you're not just this individual creative genius, but you have this responsibility to social justice, which to my mind, I'm not a poet or a fiction writer, but that seems crippling. The idea that every word I write, I have to think, does that advance the cause of of my team? That seems like the enemy of art.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's stifling, And I think maybe I'm in the minority, although, you know, there's a silent majority, I think, that that agrees along lines with Clint that we should separate the poet from the poem or the artist from the art. And I think there's a way that just the literary community itself has become so career oriented at this point. I think there are 250 MFA programs graduating masters of creative writing. I think they're graduating about 3000 professional writers and it's a very few positions. It's really kind of like a pyramid scheme with Everybody competing for those tenure track jobs and for those few slots where you could have paid readings and and sell books, and it becomes such a careerist mindset that it is about you know where you fit on the hierarchy instead of the work itself, and it rattle. You know we were founded twenty five years ago to avoid all that stuff and to not look at the bios and backgrounds of the poets and just read the poems and i think the poetry community itself has lost the sense that poetry has value you know inherent value and and i still think it does and i think if i read a poem no matter who wrote it no matter if the most terrible person in the world wrote the poem there's a way that it makes me see the world in a different way it challenges my worldview it brings some kind of different perspective And I think that has value in and of itself. And I think that's kind of been forgotten.
1: I know that for a lot of poets, it's really a passion because over the last year I've spoken to one or two who've been deplatformed and they hate it that they're disconnected from their community and they feel they can write the most brilliant poem imaginable and no one will read it or take it seriously because of, of who they are. Does it pain you too that these sort of concerns hang over every conference every meeting
3: maybe even casual drinks with other poets i think that that's kind of overblown a little bit actually just because of the structure of the way publishing works now uh, we're kind of at a point where there's so many writers and and not just poetry but but people who want to be novelists, that it's a black box. When you submit your work to somebody to see if they want to publish it, you have no idea the decisions or the variables that they're considering in that decision. And it's so easy to say, am I being blacklisted because of something I said on Twitter? And I don't know how often that's the case. There's nobody who really does. So it's really easy to think that you're being marginalized and pushed aside as an excuse for the fact that your writing just didn't, Appeal to somebody too, so it's a really difficult situation. It's really easy to jump to that conclusion prematurely. I think, of the poets who you know have been mobbed on social media, they're mostly still successful. Actually, um, Anders Carlson Wee, who wrote that poem in the Nation, I think Colette covered that over the summer. You know, his book just came out on a major press. Um, I just saw the other day, you know, him next to his box of author copies, and he was thrilled about it. There were reviews about it everywhere. Rachel Custer publishes all over the place. So there's a sense that this means a lot. And I think in the university environment, it does because you're competing for so many jobs. But there are plenty of publishers out there who just don't know or don't care about these petty issues that come up that I don't think it really matters much. I don't know if Clinton agrees with that, but that's my perspective. You know, I just think that there's still plenty of space for everybody. And it's just that black box that makes everybody think that they're blacklisted at all times. Because we receive about 40,000 people submitting poems every year. Oh, wow. uh, 150,000 poems, and we publish 300. You get 150,000 poems from 40,000 different writers. You're
1: publishing about one out of every 500 poems you receive.
3: Yeah, less than two percent or less than zero point two percent.
1: Yeah. do you personally read every poem?
3: Oh, I do. yeah. yeah. well, you know me and my wife work together and we read everything and then we have a little committee that decides after the fact. but that's sorry that we're, we're passing over that quickly. That's extraordinary. Well like I said before 3000 people are graduating every year after every year after every year with degrees in, in creative writing and they want to be published and they're writing amazing stuff too it's a, it's sort of a the golden age of poetry and nobody's noticing wow but the point, though, is that 99.8% or more of submissions that are sent to magazines, and there are, I think, 800 or 2,000, you know, some huge number of, of magazines that publish poems now, but the vast majority of them are turned down. So it's so easy to think that you're being turned down for any reason other than the writing itself or just the fact that someone you know, wrote something that fit with what the magazine wanted to do more. So I think that's one of the real psychological traumas of this is once you're hounded by a mob like this, you think that everything has to do with it. And I don't think it does.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, Tim. And and where I think of that, when I think in five years from now, is anyone going to care what a poet did on Twitter? You know, is any publisher, if they keep working, if they keep sending their work out, I don't think anyone you know, even if they're mobbed five years before, even Frank Sherlock, I think will recover from this. But the problem that I have with it is it really does create this culture of fear though. And I think it's leading to a lot of self-censorship. For me, the point of this article, I think was broader than just poetry in that I do think that we are living in these times where there's a lot of self-censorship, a lot of fear to speak out, to, to express an opinion, whether it's through your art or just, you know, political opinion or anything. And I think this is a problem for our democracy.
3: You know, that culture of fear is such an important aspect. You were talking about people who committed far worse crimes before than, um, you know, saying something terrible on Twitter or doing something bad 20 years ago. We have published a lot of murderers, like literal, actual, on-death-row murderers. And nobody ever calls us out for that on Twitter.
1: Sorry, I got to interrupt you there, because I've tweeted about the same phenomenon. I edited a magazine a couple of years ago. I published a piece by a guy who'd spent 20 years in jail for killing another drug dealer. He wrote a book, and I ran a book excerpt, and I didn't get a single complaint. The ultimate crime, the most important biblical stories are about this horrible, horrible crime. No one cared about that. And I find it interesting that the same is true of poets who kill people.
2: To go back to maybe what you were saying earlier about that is, I actually don't think that murder is the biggest taboo amongst <laughs> these people. There are worse transgressions, ideological transgressions. It's it's worse to some of these people, of course, I'm exaggerating, but to have a wrong political opinion. Uh, they still do believe that a murderer can be redeemed, and I believe that as well. But it's much worse to say you uh, voted for Trump, I think, these days with some some of these people.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing. When people have petitioned to blacklist me personally for publishing people who should be blacklisted for these thought crime-type transgressions, but at the same time, no one has ever mentioned that we, we we gave an award to a poet. We gave the Neil Postman Award for metaphor to a poet named Jack Vian, maybe three or four years ago, who was in prison for killing, I think it was 1997, maybe. You know, it was somebody who, he was pursuing a woman, and he killed her and her boyfriend in a very brutal manner. It was the worst crime you can imagine. I mean, talk about me too. And I mean, there are some crimes that that might be worse if you killed 50 people or, or war crimes might be worse, but there's very few crimes that are worse than this crime. And he's serving a multiple life sentences in a Texas prison. And he became though over the years, a really good poet. He became a Buddhist and he's leading a Buddhist meditation at the prison itself. And nobody ever said a word about that. And not only that, but like, there's nothing he can do that can redeem what he did. But allowing him to do whatever good he can while he's still alive on this world is better than not letting him do anything at all. And I just can't reconcile the fact that someone like him, or I mean, there's so many people. There was, and um, you know, we published Damien Eccles. I don't know if you're familiar with the West Memphis Three and Damien Eccles. But he was convicted of murder when we published him, and it turned out that he was innocent. The thing is, like, who am I to judge who is guilty and who is innocent if a jury can't decide who's guilty and innocent, having a prosecutor a defense arguing over the case and they come out wrong sometimes? Who am I to judge not only that, but if I can judge that they're guilty of whatever they're accused of, who am I to judge if, they're, if there's redemption available there? You know, I'm not in a position of that with a Google search. And I'm not a religious person, but I really want to say, like it's up to God to judge that. Like, I'm an atheist, but, you know, it's not within my capacity as a human being to make those judgments as a publisher over who is worth having a chance at redemption and who's not. and sort of pull it back down to these, you know, people who have some problematic thing they said at one time, the the dichotomy there, I just can't get past. And so, that's the main reason why I don't feel like I can censor somebody for a tweet that they made once. Because if I did, I'd have to censor everybody up that ladder. And I just can't make those judgment calls. Can I go back to the to the name of, of that, that award, the Metaphor Award? What was it called? That was the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor, which we give out once a year for the best use of metaphor out of any of the submissions we received in the previous year. So we just look at the poems and see who had the most fresh and original way of looking at the world. And that was Jack Vian, who won maybe 2015.
1: And do you remember the dominant metaphor that existed in the poem? Yes.
3: Yeah, so do you want me to read? The, it's a pretty short poem. Do you want me I, to read the I whole thing? I think
1: it's fitting that we end this podcast episode with a poem.
3: Okay. So this is Jack Vian Musashi-san, and it's a haibun. Who are the ones who awake without hearing the sound of the sun-filled clouds dancing upon the edges of an outstretched wing? And who am I? to stand alone like a swordsman without his sword, a mere figure in the unresolved distance, like a brushstroke awaiting a scroll, an empty bowl ungrateful for the pleasure of its emptiness. Thanks to both of you for being on the Quillette podcast.
1: Absolutely, and thank you for inviting us.
3: Yeah, thank
0: you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.